0: This is UCD Business Impact, a podcast series from UCD College of Business, Ireland's leading business school. And each week, we'll be joined by world-renowned academics from across the College of Business, as well as industry leaders, to discuss the most compelling business issues facing Ireland and the world. Our experts each week will offer insight, spark curiosity, and challenge you to rethink how you do business in a changing world. I'm your host, Emmett Oliver, financial editor and journalist, and lecture at New City College of Business. Now you're welcome to another edition and I want you to bear with me a little bit on this one because I have been double vaccinated in the last few days at the Aviva Stadium so let's hope fatigue is not a side effect at least for the next 30 minutes. Uh, I'd like to say also thanks to Professor Anne Keegan who was in our last podcast conversation and a wonderful conversation with the gig economy. I think our main message was it can be made fairer but there is huge reform needed in this area before we, we get to what is acceptable employment practices in that area of the economy. Now, this is unapologetically a business-themed podcast. So by definition, we're seeking to cover multiple sectors, multiple geographies, and crucially, multiple perspectives. But I was actually swiping through our web page of podcasts the other day. Yes, I had a bit of spare time. And there was something missing. There was lots of people, lots of different industries, but not a banker in sight. This is the industry Like it or not, that provides the capital that flows through the bloodstream of the economy. But we've not had a single conversation with a single banker since we started our business-themed podcast last year. So it is a little strange, but we're aiming to correct that today. Not with the leader of an Irish retail bank, but with the head of one of the world's largest banks in Ireland, HSBC. And the leader of that bank in Ireland is Alan Duffy. He's been CEO there for over seven years. He happens to hold an MBA from UCD Smurfit. And he's also serving on a number of boards of charities, including as chair of AWARE, the mental health charity. Alan, you're very welcome to our podcast, our first ever banking guest. Delighted, Emma. Thank you very much for having me
1: as your guest.
0: It's great to have you along. We have been neglecting the industry. I don't know what happened. It was purely by accident. We haven't been covering off financial services. We've kind of pretty much touched on everything else. So it's good to have you along. And um, it's a good time of the summer. There is lots of noise around pubs and hospitality. And we'll see how that all plays out. But I think as the the vaccine programme rolls out, I think there is just a generally more optimistic air out there across the economy and wider society. Alan, first of all, I suppose we get started with the obvious COVID uh, came and hit us all. Massive impact last March. How have you been getting through the pandemic? How has the company been doing? And how have your colleagues been doing? The crisis has hit us in in
1: many ways. I suppose the first uh, foremost is the impact on our people. I mean, we as a global organization, we're in 62 countries employing just over 220,000 people. We literally overnight went from people working in offices to remote working, uh, facilitated by an excellent uh, IT infrastructure that kicked in not without its hiccups in the early days, but the transition from March to April 2020 was fairly seamless. Now, it was very much on a, certainly for the first couple of months, i describe it almost like a war footing. A lot of our clients were uh, shocked at the speed of collapse in in economic activity. Some sectors worse hit than others, certainly hospitality, travel, airlines, etc., uh, others uh, proved remarkably resilient, but but I think it's been a a testament to the fact that you know technology has come on so enormously, and it was there when we, as an industry, uh, financial services, needed it, and I think you know as many other industries needed it. It's you know it's 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 been it's been difficult, but business has continued on in a in a fashion that is completely different than where it was pre pandemic. Uh, but certainly, uh, we see very much, and certainly in the first quarter of this year, uh, signs of strong economic activity come out of uh, those kind of early traumatic days, days of the pandemic when companies were striving to retain liquidity, we're looking at banking confidence, we're making contingency plans on how they transact in a virtual uh, a virtual world but economies have a remarkable resilience and ability to bounce back. And that's clearly what we're seeing now, Emmett. And Alan, there's a
0: big debate going on among a lot of big financial services companies about whether it's better to be back at the office, working remotely, a blended experience. I've seen Jamie Dimon commenting. I've seen Goldman Sachs commenting. I've seen some of the banks here in Ireland commenting. I mean, I suppose there's a little bit of learn as you go and, and, and the debate will is not over by any means, but what's your own instinct about what you think is going to be the best way to work in future for for a company like HSBC in Ireland? Or or is it still kind of, let's just see how this kind of evolves? Well, our
1: CEO, Noel Quinn, has firmly come out and said, look, we're looking at a blended model of work going forward. We globally are reducing our real estate footprint here in Dublin. I've taken the decision to lose one floor in our building, take the opportunity to reconfigure uh, our existing real estate footprint to be more Environmentally friendly, we're upgrading air conditioning, we're putting in energy saving devices. We're we're planning on the basis that we'll only ever have at a maximum between 40 and 60 percent of our headcount back in the office. We're we're not as dictatorial as some of the Wall Street banks. We're very much saying, you know, you're welcome back to the office when you're ready to come back. Um, A lot of our frontline bankers who are interacting with clients. I think there's there's a requirement and a necessity for a lot of them to be in uh, in the office and and doing what they do in terms of meeting clients physically, those clients who want to meet physically. Uh, A lot of the processing activities can be done remotely, are being done successfully remotely, and we're facilitating people to to work from home. There's still a a reticence for people to use public transport to be in confined spaces. We're acutely sensitive to that. We're, We're very much, Emmett, the blended work uh, work model, rather than saying, "Look, at you have to be back
0: in the office." That's fascinating. I mean, you're you're known as a deal maker. You do a lot of deals uh, on the business banking side, corporate banking side. How have you found the zooms? I mean, we're all slightly tiring of them. Um, this is being recorded on a zoom right now, so. Uh, full disclosure there. I mean, how have you found them just trying to make connections with clients and and, and sign off on deals and so on? Has that, has that been difficult for you personally? Personally, 100%.
1: I mean, I'm not a fan of Zoom, you know, and I've said that uh, to my, my, my teams know that, my colleagues know that. I'm not a fan of Zoom, call me old-fashioned, but I do like to be in the room with the individuals that I am transacting with. I think you lose a lot of the kind of richness of dialogue you lose a lot of that that kind of serendipity or conversations that happen that lead to transactions saying that you know, have um, has this pandemic or has our new way of working resulted in a a cessation or a, a a lack of transaction activity? And I'd have to answer that and say no. Deals are getting done. They're getting done remotely. I spoke to one uh, finance director of a company who's just concluded a very large multi-jurisdictional transaction, and he said, "Alan, look at." I mean, I find it much more efficient to engage with lawyers, to engage with advisors in a Zoom environment and uh, get things done rather than, than kind of traveling, getting on a plane, et cetera. So it's horses for courses. But we're, we're seeing transaction activity continue apace. I, I just prefer, I think, the, the, the physical interaction rather than that, that virtual piece as well. But, you know, we just get on with it and we adapt.
0: Now you've got a great feel for what's going on with the business community when you're in that whole world of corporate banking. You're talking to people across sectors. I know that the bank has been here a long time, and you've developed kind of good, strong roots in different sectors. What is everyone saying? What are the the people that you're dealing with saying about where we are economically with the pandemic? I mean, what's the what's the mood like, or what's the sentiment that you're picking up like? Well,
1: certainly in the first half of this year, I haven't seen as strong an M and A. Activity for Irish corporates in many years. I, I would say in the guts of a decade, it's been incredible, both the quantum of transactions, the variety of transactions, um, and and the kind of you know the the intricacy of transactions as well. I mean, I always say that as a small open economy, we punch way above our, our weight uh in 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 economic terms. We're seeing good transaction activity in the pharma sector, a number of high-profile deals in that sector. Ironically, we're seeing a lot of transaction in the aircraft leasing sector as well, an, an industry you would have thought has been severely impacted by global travel. But transaction activity is going on based on the fact that aircraft air travel will come back. We are an island. Uh, you know, we rely on our airports, we rely on our airlines a significant amount. Obviously, we have a well-developed pharma sector, medical devices sector. We're seeing a lot of activity in, in that space as well. So in terms of if I was to measure it by cross-border M&A activity, it's been a bumper six months for Ireland. And I think that was, you know, coming. We certainly saw Q4 of last year. A lot of companies with strong balance sheets, lots of liquidity preserve cash during the pandemic, looking around for acquisitions and and prepared to pay strong multiples to make those acquisitions. So that sector of the economy buoyant, obviously, hospitality, it's really still on its knees. You have that classic bifurcation in Ireland between the domestic economy and that overseas piece. Uh, inward investment is still continuing. I think the IDA again continues to knock the ball out of the park, notwithstanding the kind of, you know, the existential issues around tax, taxation, uh, potential incre- increases in taxation. Brexit, my feeling on Brexit, Emmett, you know, a lot of Irish companies are were incredibly well prepared, more so than our UK colleagues for Brexit, the impact of Brexit. It's been you know, to use a technical term, a pain in the ass from (laughs) From a supply chain perspective for a lot of companies. But, you know, what continues to amaze me, and I have no um, hesitation in talking up the resilience, um, the caliber of Irish companies that trade internationally. I continue to see phenomenal examples of our our companies, Irish companies that are trading in Asia, the Middle East, North America, Latin America, globally, and their ability and resilience to deal with economic shocks, to deal with trade shocks, to deal with, you know, you name it. And let's face it, as an economy, you know, we've been thrown pretty much everything has been thrown at us over the last kind of 10, 15, 20 years, even from the global financial crisis. Um, But, you know, you've got strong calibre of finance directors. You've got great salespeople. You've got great representatives of Ireland on the international stage. I'm privileged and fortunate enough to see them via the HSBC network. Um, And I just see, you know, further example of that resilience during Brexit in that attitude. Look at it's here, let's get on with it. Um, we're well-prepared, um, we, can, we can overcome this. And also, bear in mind, Emmett, if you look at the, the um, diversification away from the UK, a lot of Irish companies have spent the last decade diversifying to other markets, whether it be continental Europe, whether it be further afield. So the reliance on the UK is much less than it was a decade, a decade ago. Still a huge, important market for us, but if you look at even the way we diversified, kind of moving away from the UK land bridge and sailings directly to the continent now, it's disruptive, but it's certainly not terminal for a lot of Irish companies.
0: Now, tell us a little bit about HSBC, uh, the bank. I mean, obviously, a lot of people know it as a big global brand. We've all seen the name on the front of the British and Irish lines, rugby jerseys. That's certainly for Irish people where they might interact with the brand because it's not a retail bank here in Ireland. But can you tell us what, what you do in Ireland You know the kind of operations you have here and then crucially if you could talk to us a little bit about what kind of future you see the bank having in Ireland uh, in the next few years
1: I mean we're a bank that started and continues to be very much focused on trade um, with a 62 country network uh, with a massive focus on Asia I mean it's the Hong Kong and Shanghai Banking Corporation founded in 1865 in both Hong Kong and Shanghai with the objective to facilitate trade in 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 the region we are a universal bank Uh, i wouldn't describe us as an investment bank although we have an investment bank we're a commercial bank we've been in ireland for over 30 years however we took the decision in 07 to significantly increase our banking presence in Ireland uh, in conjunction with opening up a a number of your reopening a number of European offices. We're a wholesale bank in Ireland Emmett, we concentrate not on the retail side, but on the wholesale corporate banking side. And we also have a very successful funds administration business. Again, Dublin is known globally and within Europe as a key location for funds administration. And we've leveraged off that. A great place to do business. But why are we in Ireland? Well, look at classic open economy. We're the most open, one of the most open economies globally. 96 percent of what's produced on the island of Ireland is exported. We're as open an economy as Hong Kong, or as open an economy as Singapore. Classic island economies. Our business is built on trade. Our business is built on linking companies to opportunities globally. Irish companies normally, when they, you know, when they get large, the first port of call is the UK. A lot of them go to the US as the second port of call. Increasingly, we're seeing that diversify to Asia, to the Middle East, to North Africa. And we're helping companies in those jurisdictions with an on-the-ground presence with people in each of those countries that they can get local banking with and ultimately circle back to a relationship manager based in Dublin who controls the global relationship, whose responsibility is to deliver the bank globally for that group treasurer, which, you know, decision makers for these companies are normally based in Dublin with a global remit. You know, we do that very successfully for Irish companies. We do it very successfully for multinationals that are investing in Ireland. Increasingly, we see Asian Uh, Chinese-based multinationals invest in Ireland. We have a natural advantage over most banks, given that we are the the largest foreign bank in mainland China. Um, And obviously that that well-worn Ireland-US trade corridor as well, we would bank a lot of the larger multinationals. And, you know, it's um, it's an immensely fertile place to do business for an international bank. It's just it's it's a no brainer actually that that we're here and we're
0: we're very proud we're very proud of of, of being able to support Irish companies. What I notice about the bank, uh, which is probably the most interesting part in recent years, is your heavy emphasis on what's known as ESG or environmental, social, and governance, um, which is a whole new area where non financial factors are you know looked upon as growth opportunities. I noticed just even in your own LinkedIn account, you know, you strongly emphasize this. The company strongly emphasizes it. So, you know, the first question people will say is, is this just, you know, a large bank trying to do the right thing for marketing reasons? Or is there real business opportunities and growth in here? How do you view it yourself? Emmett, this is the
1: largest single opportunity for financial services uh, for all our industries, um, uh, well, certainly for financial services, in terms of moving capital to something that is absolutely critical. We have committed between 750 billion and 1 trillion uh, between now and 2030, effectively over the next decade, to sustainable finance solutions for our clients, in addition to committing to become um, net zero, bank with our internal operations by by, by by 2030. I mean, currently, you know, 40% of the electricity we use comes from renewable resources. We aim to have that at 100% uh, by 2030. We've reduced our carbon emissions by half between 2011 and 2020. This is incredibly serious. Um, Europe is at the absolute epicenter of setting out policy for ESG setting out what governs uh, and what constitutes a green financing opportunity but funnelling capital to this area is 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 certainly the future every financial product whether it be wholesale and indeed retail will have a green or an esg wider ESG angle to it going forward it's it's uh, it's absolutely um, critical you know to meet those those climate targets and I think increasingly what you're seeing is a lot of countries commit to carb- become carbon neutral by 2050. however 2030 is a very very critical date an extremely critical date and I think you know with the next major international conference, cop 26 happening in glasgow in november of this year i think you'll see the bar getting higher from the regulator uh from governments uh in in a race to get to that net zero and keep you know climate uh, temperature levels to 1.5 degrees uh, above pre-industrial levels as the paris agreement was arguing arguing for so this isn't you know, this is by no means a fad. This is absolutely critical. Uh, it's evolving immensely fast. The regulation is evolving immensely fast, uh, and we're 100% committed to to it. And, and increasingly, every month that goes by, I see companies just move their own um, move their own kind of uh, direction towards more ESG focus uh, uh, because investors want it and. You know, fundamentally, who wants to be dealing with stranded assets that are carbon intensive uh, sitting in a
0: portfolio? So there's there's a multitude of of reasons to do it. But fundamentally, it's the right thing to do. I know. And we probably need to give it a full podcast on its own at a future date. So I know I'm not doing it full justice because you guys are, are very active in that area. Could I bring you on to a little bit of the competitiveness question in banking generally? There's an awful lot of noise like it's just so much coverage at the moment about the threat from fintechs, you know, everyone I know below a certain age, and it's not a scientific sample, but, you know, has a Revolut account. You know, we're hearing so much about disruption of the traditional banking model. And you've mentioned you're a universal bank doing, you know, a number of different services under one roof. I mean, when you read all this sort of stuff, do you, do you think the fintech threat is real? Do you think it's slightly overplayed? I mean, what, what's your own sense of it as, as a professional banker of this threat from these disruptors coming into, into your sector?
1: Yeah, I think it's a natural evolution of where financial services is going and that coalescing or merging of technology and, and financial products. So I see it as an evolution. Um, you know, I've got a revenue card in my in, in, in my wallet. I use it almost daily. Well, certainly as 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 a means of giving money to my 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 well, I won't say my children, my adult children, at <laughs> the, adult the, children. my <laughs> adult children at this stage. FinTechs are now an embedded part of the financial ecosystem. Um, they're here to stay. I think, you know, it's like, you know, certain X number will survive, a certain percentage will survive. I think the difference between, you know, a fintech and say a in vertical commerce traditional bank like HSBC has to be the ability, you know, the strength of balance sheet, the access to capital the external rating, the regulatory environment, the fact that we are regulated. So there's a a, a kind of fortress of kind of trust, uh, market trust, I mean, around traditional banks that you don't get around a fintech. There is an enhanced level and degree of risk. And again, you know, you find a a certain age cohort are are comfortable with that. But I, I think banks and fintechs will Exist uh, alongside each other will coalesce as banks invest in fintechs, and technology is part and parcel of where financial services is 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 going in the future. Do I see kind of the larger fintechs eating kind of uh, banks lunch in the short term? Probably not, um, but but certainly are being are being taken as a threat. You know, there's a lot of noise around cryptocurrency. There's a lot of negative noise around cryptocurrency, I think, until the stage where Central Bank kind of puts its reputational uh, power behind a cryptocurrency. You know, we've clearly say- said as an institution, we will stay
0: clear of it. And this threat from the fintechs comes at a time of negative interest rates are certainly you know ultra low interest rates, You know, we can see banks in Ireland, Ulster Bank and a few others that are are certainly shrinking in Ireland are are citing, you know, that low rate environment as making it very, very difficult to keep margins up and and make healthy returns as banks. I mean, you're in a slightly different part of the industry, but how concerned are you that, you know, rates are probably going to remain low and there's a bit of an inflation threat, but governments certainly want them to be low. Um, I mean, how concerned are you that the banking model is going to stay under pressure for some time in, in that type of environment? Yeah. And I mean, if you look at HSBC, you know,
1: we're a classic play on on interest rates. We're incredibly liquid balance sheet. We hold very, what we call sticky deposits. A lot of our retail customers in Asia will place their money with HSBC, almost akin to to putting money with a, a central bank from a security perspective. And, you know, you've got a massive savings ethos in that part of the world. So, you know, we're a wash with liquidity we're a wash with with deposits that are not generating um uh, that are ju- not generating uh, revenue in this environment um i think we're seeing a a a, um, a slight turn in the interest rate environment, some of the, the central banks, uh, I think Australia, New Zealand, and some of the others have signalled maybe some rate rises in the future. Yes, inflation is rearing its ugly head. You know, it's a cycle, Emmett. I, I think a lot of institutions are moving away from kind of that net interest margin net interest I- income to uh, fee-based um, fee based uh, revenue. Certainly, you know, if you want to access a global a global payments pack platform that, that an institution like we have, or indeed Citibank or, or JP Morgan, you know, there is a cost to that. And, and we are seeing an uptick in fees um, uh, on, on, on that side to balance out the loss of revenue from this low interest rate environment. I mean, we've been charging a lot of our corporate clients, wholesale clients, um, you know, uh, to hold deposits with us. And a lot of institute, a lot of corporates are happy to do that because the counterparty risk that we have is very, uh, that we represent is very, very strong. Um, so, so that they're willing, they're willing to pay for that.
0: Now, one of the things I, I noticed you mentioned at the start of the podcast was you had reduced your, your property uh, footprint a little bit at HSBC. I think you mentioned a, f- a floor was taken, uh, or, or basically handed back to the landlords per se. I mean, this brings me to a, a wider concern that I would have, which is that the traditional business model of Ireland, which in terms of FDI was to bring big companies together. They put a lot of services, they put them in one office, might be, you know, um, customer service, there might be an R and all of it comes together. Multiple languages are used. Um, that model, which very much had a property element. I mean, do you think that's just as, as an observer, I know you're not directly involved in, in the FDI game, but as an observer, do you think that business model is... Looking a bit frayed around the edges. What, what's your own take? Yeah, I think they the
1: announced, but I think was it was it
0: Facebook yes.
1: recently that, that that announced you know the ability for their their teams to to work remotely abroad out of the jurisdiction. Um, uh, obviously, you know respecting tax etc. is was certainly a shot across the bows. I mean, if I look where we are down in Grand Canal Square, you know, I'm surrounded by by tech companies with large real estate footprints. Barrow Street, classic example. And look what's happening in the old AIB bank center as well. There's a lot of real estate developed for physical presence in Ireland. Um, you'd have to say, Emma, that that, you know, a rethink of that model is probably on the cards. And I'm sure, you know government and IDA are are looking at it very very closely because you know we built a lot of real estate in this certainly in the country in the city um over the last decade specifically aimed at tech companies and so so yeah i mean this of this medical crisis has, has changed the uh, the rules of the game significantly so i'd be a little bit concerned
0: yeah I think you were saying that you had observed the amount of taxis that used to pull up on Barrow Street from the the Google offices, and just that was a little first hand witnessing of the kind of economic spin offs that come from having these offices physically located in the city yeah? absolutely and um, finally um Alan, you mentioned brexit um unfortunately, whether we like it or don 't like it, the Northern Ireland Protocol is still haunting us all, and you know it 's on on the news on a daily basis there's two very contentious sides arguing out over how that will look down the line when the British, uh, EU and Irish sides kind of come together. So Brexit hasn't gone away. It's kind of morphed, dare I say, it's become <laughs> like a mutation in another context. Uh, um, is that something that's still impacting on your own business or have things settled down a bit? I know that you have a big operation in Paris that a lot of the, the European um, agents and offices and branches report into, but has Brexit sort of just some of the heat gone out of that as an issue, or is it still very much front of mind for for, for all your clients and so on?
1: I I think, you know, we always are cognizant of kind of geopolitical risks, which are kind of, you know, the Northern Ireland protocol and everything to do with Northern Ireland has that geopolitical kind of issue. Um, For our business in terms of our European, continental European business, we took the decision to move the headquarters of our European business to Paris, uh, we now, as as a branch, we are a branch of our Paris our Paris business. It's it's pretty much business as you uh, as usual for us and for a lot of our clients, um, who have have taken the necessary steps to mitigate in whatever way they can the the, the unsavoury side of Brexit. But where I continue to see issues is in supply chains, stresses on supply chains. We have a a trade finance business in dublin and and you know paperwork customs forms etc bringing back that heavy infrastructure that dogged trade for so many years that had gone in a seamless borderless your uh, eu that's that's certainly back you know dealing with the uk is immensely more difficult now for a lot of the companies that we are financing but going back to to the resilience factor you know trade is being done um there, there's no shortages there's no significant shortages there are delays but it's uh business is a remarkable way of, of just getting on with things whether it's whatever whatever is thrown at it to be quite honest Emmett, and i've seen it year after year after year it's, it's it's incredibly resilient
0: okay well listen thanks for walking us through because we're probably more talking politics today than a lot of things because that's just the environment that's out there Good luck with the remaining Zooms you have in the job. Hopefully you won't have too many in the second half of the year. You might be able to get back into the office more permanently. But thank you very much for joining us on Business Impact. Alan Duffy, it's been a great pleasure to talk to you. Pleasure, Emma. Thank you.